0: The Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides, and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davidson, Lynette's is open for takeaway noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m., Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now. Get some Lynette's. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit. have you with me on what is a Monday as I'm recording this interview here and uh, talking about a really, really great story, an uplifting story about the city of Detroit and its future. And and really, I think what this uh, book shows is that sometimes it takes people who are both down and out at the bottom of the barrel, to find each other, to make something new happen. My guest today is John Gallagher, of course, a longtime journalist for the Detroit Free Press, a frequent guest on my programs over the years. He has a new book out called The Englishman and Detroit, A British Entrepreneur Helps Restore a City's Confidence. If you're watching the video, you can see the cover here so you can see what it looks like. Eh, I'm trying to do this better. Um, But anyway, John Gallagher, welcome to the Craig Folly Show. It's a pleasure (laughs) to have you here today.
1: Well, thanks, Craig. It's great to be back with you.
0: Well, you know, and and this is great because the subject of this book is a man named Randall Charlton, who I had met on numerous occasions, uh, especially back when he was running TechTown and when Astorand, the company he founded, uh, was getting up and going. Um, But I had never looked deep into his backstory. And getting back to the beginning of this, I said, you know, it takes a couple of people who are maybe down in their luck to find each other sometimes. That's exactly what was going on. He and Detroit found each other at exactly the time they both needed.
1: Yeah, you're right. And and I think uh, one reason why I was so taken with Randall's story and made it the centerpiece of the book is that I thought he was really a good metaphor for Detroit itself. That is, he had a long, successful... Early career uh, from his twenties through through his forties uh you know doing really interesting stuff around the world as an agribusinessman, agroscientist. scientist uh then hit this this awful stretch where nothing worked and he was broke and and even homeless briefly and increasingly depressed and then uh, a friend of his who was a venture capitalist in the bioscience space uh urged him to you know try and start this new company that became Astrand a bioscience company. And he needed the, uh, the most cost-effective lab space in the country, which he found at Kermanos here in Detroit. And so moved here at the age of 60 and had this huge success with Astran and then ran TechTown and made TechTown the hub of entrepreneurial activity in Detroit. So, so just like Detroit, long early success, wilderness years, and then climbing back out. So I thought he was a good metaphor for Detroit itself.
0: Uh, but but not just a good metaphor. I mean, a, a guy who actually had a pretty significant impact. I mean, beyond just the one company, Astorand, which uh, he built into something uh, pretty remarkable and, of course, uh, took public, which is a huge deal. Um, and, and they really created their own field almost. I mean, there are a couple of competitors, but they they basically got rid of them because they did it more effectively uh, and, and helped put Detroit on a map in an industry other than automotive, which seems to be right. a big part of this. Right. Exactly. How hugely important was that?
1: Oh, I think it's enormously important because um, by the year 2000, the the type of economy, the model that we followed for 100 years, which is the enormous industrial operations built around autos and steel, uh, that had been imploding uh, there's no way other way around it we had lost hundreds of thousands of jobs uh, GM and Chrysler both filed for bankruptcy of course and the state was desperate to find some other economic model and while the auto companies have have recovered and done quite well recently um, at the same time we really have recreated this or created from scratch this entrepreneurial ecosystem e- ecosystem so that startups Um, whether it's mom-and-pop things like bridal salons or coffee shops or really advanced high-tech kind of stuff, now we see those flourishing in Detroit. And we have this huge ecosystem with venture capital firms and angel investors and incubators like TechTown and Ann Arbor Spark and and groups like the New Economy Initiative and Build Institute and Motor City Match and so on. So we've we've built this from scratch. And um, I think Randall was a leader in that and really was a significant achievement for Detroit.
0: Well, well, John, I think one of the things I learned about uh, from this book was the fact that, you know, obviously Detroit was an entrepreneurial hub at the beginning of the auto industry. You had all sorts of upstarts trying to build companies. That sort of settles itself out. And you get to this point where entrepreneurship was really stagnant in the community because, you know, the reins had been turned over to these three massive companies. So, yes, you could innovate within a company, but starting your own was almost impossible at the time.
1: Right, right. Well, the book tries to retell the story of people like Preston Tucker and Henry Kaiser, who tried to start new auto companies here as startups in the 1940s and, and got absolutely nowhere. Uh, and of course, all the entrepreneurs in Black Bottom were wiped out uh, by urban renewal. So uh, yeah, for a long time, it was hard to be a startup, and there was no culture. There were no incubators. There was no venture capital. Uh, the, the the culture was entirely a big company kind of culture. And and that's what I think is so remarkable, remarkable about the story about how we kind of reinvented this ecosystem that was there in the early 1900s with Henry Ford and all those guys. Uh, but then very quickly coalesced into this enormous industrial model, where a professional manager was was you know what you needed, and entrepreneurs didn't add that much. As you said, Craig, they you could innovate within a company, but to be a startup was just really frowned upon. And uh, oh. so we've reinvented that in the last recent years. Well, and,
0: you know, Randall Charlton seems an unlikely person to be the one leading this sort of biotech charge, at least on this side. Given his background, I mean, I love the fact that he spent a lot of time dealing with animal husbandry issues. Uh, You know, that was his first real sort of thing. And then he moves into restaurants in in Miami or, excuse me, Sarasota, and then finds his way in Detroit after a couple of stops in other places trying to sort of reassemble his life. Um, You know, he just seemed like an unlikely character to end up here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He had never been here until um, in, until he came here to start the company. Uh, I think you're right. Although, you know, as an entre- he, he was always an entrepreneur. He was always the kind of guy who would look for new opportunities. And uh, he had this friend, a man named Alan Walton, who was a big venture capitalist and uh, big with the Human Genome Project and was had the money to bankroll something like what became Astorand, Randall's company. And uh, but you're right. He had never been here. A highly unlikely person. Um, You know, age of 60, uh, we think of entrepreneurs as, you know, 20-year-olds, you know, eating ramen noodles in their dorm room. And, uh, <laughs> and here we got this 60-year-old British guy comes to Detroit and becomes the champion of entrepreneurship here. So, yeah, very unlikely story, which is what makes it all the more remarkable, I think.
0: Well, and, you know, had the city and Wayne State University not been somewhat proactive, it's entirely possible that this venture could have ended up in Ann Arbor, which, you know – you hate to think about like sort of the butterfly effect of some of these things, but had Astra not found a way to get into the tech town space, you know, can can we sit there and, and speculate as to what would have been the long term impact on, on what's happening in Detroit right now?
1: Yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, clearly the um, uh, and, and not only you know, with Astor his company when he when he finally retired after they went public uh, and Irv Reed, who is president of Wayne State, said, well, why don't you come on and take over this thing we got called Tech Town, which is not doing very well and you'll be the director. And uh, so he did that and he later called it the best job he ever had. And, uh, you know, when he started, when he took over at Tech Town uh, around 2007, uh, they had a handful of employees, uh, very few entrepreneurs. They were broke financially. When he left, they had 250 member entrepreneurs. They had three dozen employees. They were on a sound financial footing, and he had really uh, preached the gospel of entrepreneurship in Detroit, where it really became acceptable now for not only not only the youthful college kids, but middle-aged people, refugees from the auto industry, um, you know, single parents without an MBA. To try entrepreneurship, and so we see this flourishing of of startups, not all of which are going to make it because a lot of you know entrepreneur startups fail, but it's certainly okay to try it and that's what he knew from his own career and you know he had demonstrated that over and over in his own career uh, and he showed that you can really um gain confidence through entrepreneurship and he thought that 's what Detroit needed to restore its confidence
0: well and and you point out here that he looks at his time at tech town as as amongst you know uh the most fun he's had uh working and and the most exciting time that he's had here. What what was it about that backdrop that he appreciated so much?
1: Well I think he got to work with wonderful people, uh both the staff that he hired at Tech Town and also just the Detroiters. I mean people like Carla Walker Miller, for example, was one of the women Carla of course one of the one of the uh great um entrepreneurial success stories in Detroit with her energy company. <clears throat> she was really floundering uh before she got to tech down and and she talks in the book about how much Randall did for her. And um and I think that was deeply satisfying for him to help to help people. He's the kind of guy who just really, really wants to help people. I think he he was so down and out in his own life uh for such a long stretch and that's so deeply affected him that that to recover and then to help other people recover their own confidence i just think that he saw detroit as the place he was meant he was meant to be
0: i should remind folks my guest right now is john gallagher of sure. course a long time a journalist for the detroit free press he's now doing freelance work writing books but his latest is called the englishman and detroit a british entrepreneur helps restore a city's confidence um <laughs> You also point out that there were regional uh, movements as a result of a lot of the things that Randall was able to accomplish. Uh, other people were thinking the same things, but it started to coalesce, really, about the time that Astrand was starting to to get big. You're talking about the new economy initiative uh, and Ann Arbor Spark and and how this sort of entrepreneurial push really took off again in Michigan. Uh, how much of that was due to what Randall was was doing in Detroit, you think?
1: Well, I think some of it was. I think there are a lot of other people who, who saw the need. I think uh, we, we talked oh, to uh, yes. yeah, Miriam Nolan of the Community Foundation and so on in the book about how everyone understood that the, the auto industry was imploding. And this is, this is in the years just before GM and Chrysler filed for bankruptcy. So everyone was, uh, was aware that we had to reinvent the economic model in Michigan. If you remember in Michigan, we, we did 10 years in a row where we lost jobs, the lost decade for three years in a row we had the highest unemployment rate in the country in michigan for three years in a row during that so everybody was aware we had to do something but nobody knew quite what to do uh they they talked about talent they talked about uh you know diversifying the economy
0: cool Uh, cities yeah all sorts of stuff yeah
1: all kinds (laughs) of stuff yeah festival marketplaces remember those um and um so but the idea of startups gradually began to coalesce and i think uh The New Economy Initiative got started in the early, uh, mid-2000s after Randall had been around a while uh, with Astorand and was moving to TechTown. And I think that um, uh, we gradually understood that we needed to focus on startups and, and really uh, provide training, mentoring, handholding, uh, finance, um, and so we saw this plethora of of uh, things like Hatch Detroit and Build Institute and the New Economy Initiative and Motor City Match—all these things that help entrepreneurs. And as a result, I think we've, um, you know, we've really uh, helped hundreds, if not thousands, of these small startups uh, make a go. So Randall was was, I think, the great apostle of that. Uh, but there's lots of other folks who were involved too, of course.
0: Well, John, I mean, I think maybe one of the most important things that came out of this was a, a new discussion about what it means to be competitive, uh, to compete for the talent, to compete for the compete for the venture capital, um, and that has trickled down. and And I hate to use that phrase because you know, trickle down is a bad phrase. But it has trickled down into the mindset of those who are actually in positions of governing. I mean, you know, city government has changed its approach to problem solving. Uh, You've got the state that has changed its approach to problem solving and job attraction and economic development. Uh, And and this is one of the things that you and I were probably talking about pre-bankruptcy is that Detroit was not competitive uh, for even its residents, you know, to stay. Uh, Do you think that this sort of push that we saw in the private sector has helped in terms of the way that the city and, and the state really are looking to approach the problems that they have.
1: Yeah, I do. I do, Craig. And you can look in even in the city of Detroit, the way, you know, the city of Detroit spun off a bunch of its operations. Uh, the Riverwalk, for example, has been built by, uh, you know, quasi private public conservancy, the Riverfront Conservancy. Eastern Market has has flourished under the Eastern Market Corporation, which is a nonprofit Uh, entity with a nonprofit board and foundation funding spun off from the city of Detroit. Um, The Workforce Development Agency, which was a complete failure when run directly under the city government, now flourishes uh, as a nonprofit corporation. And of course, Kobo went from city control to Kobo, then TCF Center, now apparently soon Huntington Place, we, we, we read, uh, you know, completely turned around and completed this marvelous um, renovation once it was sort of spun off from the city government. And I think that, that that whole attitude has has gone from the local to the county to the state level, too, where people understand you have to think of new ways. You have to be more entrepreneurial in your approach.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I sort of want to think about this last line that you have in the afterword of the book, because I think it's great. And this is a quote from Randall Charlton, of course, who says, I'm not particularly wealthy, certainly not on the level of Bill Gates or anyone remotely like him, but I've led a content rich life. Yeah, and that seems to be, you know, that seems to be a Detroiter sort of sort of way of thinking about
1: things. Yeah. You, you think of a guy who was born uh, – He's Randall's now about 80. And so he's born beginning of World War II. His family uh, went through the, the blitz in London, uh, you know, bombs raining down. And then he worked all over the world, dozens of countries, uh, came to Detroit at the age of 16, and, and not only completely turned around his own life, but really started uh, or certainly encouraged this entrepreneurial movement. And so I think he has had a deeply satisfying life, I think. And it's just – just an absolute pleasure to know him.
0: Oh, well, I do want to talk about one ath- other aspect of his life that I think was really important. You know, uh, in his early career, uh, when he was doing the animal husbandry work and and all that sort of stuff, I mean, he had an opportunity to travel all over, meet all kinds of things, explore different cultures. And that really seems to have helped him in trying to build Astorand here in the city of Detroit. Uh, whereas a lot of people here have been here. We've been sort of insulated in this little silo that is Detroit in the automotive culture for a long time that, We maybe don't know the ins and outs of of, of trying to make those connections work. Uh, Without that, I I have a feeling that Astran would have struggled a lot more.
1: Yeah, you know, I think you're right. And I I think you probably needed somebody who thought completely differently, Uh, you know, wasn't tied to the auto industry, Um, you know, wasn't. Tied to any one vision, didn't really care that uh, Detroit had been through this this hundred year history of of industrialization. Uh, just knew that we had to do something different, and he had learned from his own struggles um, the importance of confidence. And he also knew that um, uh, everybody has it within them to be to be a success, and that's so. He, I mean, he had no sense that. There's this hierarchy or this pecking order from the auto industry where the, you know, the CEOs are a peer. I mean, he that was not in his thinking at all. I mean, he was perfectly happy to work with a, you know, middle-aged single parent with, you know, who wanted to get off the line at Chrysler and become a success as an entrepreneur. That was right in his wheelhouse. And, and so I think really uh, as you say, a longtime Detroiter might not have had that same freedom uh to think that way.
0: Well, you know, and also though, just being as humbled as he had been in the middle of his career, you know, he was about my age when he was broke, uh not sure what to do. And a lot of people my age when they can't find something, just give up. He wasn't willing to do that. But it also seems like it made him willing to take a chance on a lot of people that others would would simply just discard.
1: Yeah. And I think that uh again in his own life when people took a chance on him uh, you know, 60-year-old guy, uh, you know, debt broke, hasn't had – you know, his resume is basically a blank for the last several years. Uh, and they take a chance to start this new and startup company, which was an amazing success now, doing, you know, tens of millions of dollars in business. And so uh, he was certainly – he he saw the potential in everybody. I think that's maybe his great contribution. He knew that everybody had it in them uh, to get their confidence back and be a success. Uh, Not that everybody would make it the first time or the second time or the third time, but everybody has it in them uh, to do that. And I think that's really his uh, the thing that marks him so strongly.
0: Well, you know, I I wonder if and I'm not suggesting that his legacy is larger than this, but I mean, there is a lot of changing in thought about how we approach people and who might be good for certain jobs. We're seeing changes in the way uh, that people look at education on resumes, uh, past, past experience in resumes, ageism, all sorts of things. Uh, A lot of companies are starting to realize that, you know, you should look at every resume and and find what might be good about somebody. Uh, and, And I don't want to suggest that he's responsible for that in any way, but he certainly seems to have been somebody that was showing the way for companies to approach people.
1: Yeah, you're right, Craig. And, you know, we see some of the startup companies that might have four or five, you know, 25-year-olds and one 70-year-old because the 70-year-old brings certain things. And in the same way, a bunch of middle-aged people are always looking for interns and younger folk who come in and bring that, you know that perspective. I think, you know, we're both of an age where we know that younger folk bring a totally different perspective uh, than maybe we have for our life experiences. And so this is the constant reinvention that we do in society. And I think, uh, you know, Randall was a, uh, you know, a champion of that approach.
0: Well, you know, you and I have been watching the city for a long time you know, and you look at some of the changes brought about by the people that you write about in this book, and it did make a difference in the city of Detroit and the trajectory of the city of Detroit. Um, Obviously, a lot of things that are happening here now would not be happening were it not for uh, people that were willing to take these risks early on. How do you think the city is set up going forward? We've got COVID that we're just coming out of right now. That's presented a whole lot of challenges. Is the city in a better place to withstand these types of of, uh, ripples uh, than they used to
1: be? yeah I think without question i you know I think Detroit for all of detroit's many many challenges that remain <clears throat> Detroit's really done a lot of stuff right in recent years. we've reorganized city government uh not just through the bankruptcy of some years ago but but in general we organized city government uh we figured out how to figure out how to do stuff like create the riverwalk and uh a, a new uh, convention center and so on uh we've got much better job training we're addressing things like uh, returning citizens and how to get them back in the workforce. And, uh, you know, we've created this wonderful ecosystem for entrepreneurs and startups. So I think we've done a lot of things right. And and co- uh, COVID has been a tremendous setback for Detroit, for the country, for the world. <laughs> forward, I think as we come out of COVID, I just think Detroit's in a much better position than it was, say, even 10 years ago.
0: Well, I have to ask this last question then, John. Uh, after talking about Randall Charlton as much as you did and learning as much as you did about him in this book and interviewing as many people as you did for this, uh, have you found other people potentially to look into and write about?
1: Uh, yeah, I, you know, Craig, like a lot of writers, you always have about five projects in the works and you're not sure which one's actually going to happen. But yeah, I'm I'm still actively moving ahead and doing other kinds of writing and hope to get some more some more books out there.
0: Well, very good. And just real quick, where can people find this, by the way?
1: Uh, You can order it at any of the local bookstores, pages, or The Source, or BookBeat, any of those, or, of course, Amazon, where you can buy anything. Uh, The title is The Englishman in Detroit. And if people want to contact me, they can reach me, a direct message on uh, Twitter, at jgallagher underscore D-E-T, jgallagher underscore D-E-T. And I'm happy to, um, you know, make appearances and sign books and all that sort of stuff.
0: Well, congratulations on this. I'll tell you what, I mean, it is a fast read. Uh, I took this thing down over the course of a Saturday, uh, really enjoyed it, didn't put it down all day, and uh, got a lot from it. And it's nice to see some people that I know uh, getting the recognition that they deserve for, uh, you know, a lifetime of really, really good work. Randall Charlton's a a really great story, and I'm glad you plucked it because, you know, a lot of people— don't realize the, the impact that he had. So uh, it's nice to see that happen. And, you know, you look at tech town now, the place is flourishing. They've got a lot of good things going on. So, you know, he left quite a legacy that um, otherwise might not have been known about. So we appreciate Go that, ahead. sir. Thank you.
1: You bet, Craig. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much.
0: All right. John Gallagher has been my guest on the Craig Folley show on deadline Detroit. Thanks, everybody, for listening to The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. I really do appreciate all of your support. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, it's important that you share it, that you rate this podcast, and that, of course, you subscribe to this podcast. It all helps. And the more sponsors we get, the more interviews we can do, the more shows I can put together. And I certainly do uh, want to make sure that you are enjoying what you're listening to. So if you have suggestions, you can reach out to me. The Craig Show at gmail.com. Again, that's the Craig Show at gmail.com. You can get through to me that way. It's very, very easy to do. And you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, just about anywhere. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Looking for the latest news and information about our great city of Detroit? Head to DeadlineDetroit.com for one-stop shopping for the most important stories of the day. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in town, providing original reporting, videos, and podcasts that keep you in the know about everything happening in Detroit. Become a member today, and you'll automatically be entered into a drawing for prizes, including gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Go to DeadlineDetroit.com membership.